This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. In this week's episode, we are going to talk about what it means to have an underdeveloped sense of self. We're going to talk about why we can stop crying when we're sometimes struggling with suicidal thoughts, almost like as it gets worse, we get less emotional. Why is that? And why certain diagnoses can frequently co-occur together. I'm also going to talk about TBIs, otherwise known as traumatic brain injuries, and why that can have an effect on our mental health. I'm also going to talk about being a mental health professional and having our own issues. And finally, I'm going to discuss why therapists leave room for silence in sessions, even though it's super uncomfortable. Okay, let's jump into our questions. Starting off with number one, this is, hey, Katie, I often see an underdeveloped sense of self on symptom lists for mental illnesses. But I've never really seen a comprehensive description of what a fully developed sense of self looks like. How do you recognize when someone's sense of self is underdeveloped? Does sense of self always develop in the same way? Or are there different facets of it that can be delayed, like with executive functioning? And there's a comment on this that says, would this be an identity crisis? What does that even mean? And what do you do about it? And then another person says, would this be like having self-belief? Like how do I str- how I struggle making decisions due to the f- a fear of them being wrong? I assume that could be an example. Those are all great add-ons. Let's jump into it. Now, when we talk about an underdeveloped sense of self, what that it, it can mean a lot of different things, but I'm going to run you through what my like gut reaction was when I read this question. And someone hit the nail on the head there about like struggling to make decisions. That is a big red flag for this when it comes to uh, diagnosing and treating. When I have patients who don't feel like they know what what they want or what's best for them or are scared to make decisions, that tells me that they don't have a, a developed sense of self. Because sense of self can mean not only self-worth, like having a healthy amount of confidence, having like a gut reaction, being able to identify what that reaction or thought or urge is taking actions and making choices where we need to. It can also even include some like healthy boundaries. It can also mean that when that when we know what's what's best for us, even if someone disagrees, let's say we're trying to break up with someone and they're like, but no, I love you. Someone with an underdeveloped sense of self would be like, oh, okay. And they'll stay with them because they, they aren't sure of themselves, right? Whereas someone with a healthily developed sense of self would say, no, no, I told you we don't communicate well or whatever's happening, right? The relationship isn't going to work. And so an underdeveloped sense of self really in layman's terms could be defined as us not really knowing who we are 
or even having an inkling. We often lean on outside perspectives, essentially other people's opinions of what we should do, and we would go with that 10 out of 10 times over our own maybe thoughts about it. And that's why it's something that we look to, especially with my uh, patients with borderline personality disorder. This is a big key piece, also complex PTSD, but it's a big piece of the diagnostic criteria because this can lead us to uh, impulsive behavior, can cause us to get in situations that aren't healthy or safe. It can allow for more abusive. The reason I brought it up with complex PTSD is because we tend to have more repeats of abuse as we get older, even even after we've been abused as a child, we're kind of more predisposed to have it happen again because of this, because we aren't sure about ourselves. We can't trust our gut. We don't know how to make decisions for ourselves. We second guess it and we often look out to other people and other people can sometimes take advantage of that and therefore put us in more risky situations and be traumatized or abused again. And so I hope that that kind of helps explain it. When those those extra comments like, would this be an identity crisis? No, because an identity crisis means that we knew who we were. We had a sense of self and then we kind of lost it. Now, it could, you could say it wouldn't be underdeveloped, but but it'd be an identity crisis, right? We knew who we were. We were feeling sure of that. And then something shifted. It could be we had a, a realization. Like I have a lot of patients who will struggle with the kind of identity crisis when they lose a job, when they go through a divorce, when they all of a sudden realize that their parents maybe were abusive and they didn't understand that, you know? There can be these things that reveal themselves, especially in our like internal work, that kind of rock us to the core or shake our foundation. And then we wonder, well, who am I, right? I even have a, a ton of patients in the past who once their children got old enough, either that they didn't need them, they were like teenagers, or they like moved out, like went to college, you know, went to trade school, left, right? They'll have a crisis of identity or an identity crisis because I was always the parent, taking care of them, like took up most of my time. Who am I now without them full time? Right. And that can be really hard too. That's why they call it like the empty nest syndrome is, you know, because we don't know who we are and it can be really hard. So that's, that's really more what an identity crisis is. And then the person you said, would this be like having self-belief? Yes. That was that I kind of mentioned that already, but just to clarify, yes, I believe that does fall right in line with this sense of self and this underdeveloped sense of self. And a lot of times, just for some context, this can occur because of trauma in our past. If we grew up in an environment where it wasn't safe to have an opinion because we'd be abused as a result, whether that abuse was emotional neglect, overt emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, any kind of abuse, it didn't feel safe for us to express our thoughts, our opinions, and to make decisions for ourselves. Somebody else did that. And so that can definitely contribute to this. It could also contribute if we have a parent who is a helicopter parent. We don't talk enough about this. I feel like I should do an entire video. Let me know in the comments if you agree, but just on helicopter parents, people who are overly involved in their child's life, so much so that to the effect that they don't allow them to make decisions for themselves, they do it for them. So it's like they're always stepping in. So then the child doesn't develop this ability to uh, trust in their own beliefs or gut responses, uh, taking in the information around them, making a good decision, they always are going to defer to the parent. And so that means that they never developed, you know, their own sense of self. They can't make, uh, you know, their own kind of decisions. They're not a, or what's the word I'm looking for? It's like they aren't um, critical thinkers because they've never been allowed to. 
Okay, so that can do it as well. And obviously, there's a ton of examples of where this could come from, a ton of reasons. If you want to leave what you think your reason is in the comments below, that's wonderful. Um, it's not possible to name them all, but just know that it is incredibly common and it is something we can work on in therapy. Okay, and there was an add-on on this that's kind of adjacent, but I thought it was fine to mention. It says, for executive function, because the person asked delayed like executive functioning, what would therapy for ADHD look like? Now, when it comes to treating ADHD, the treatments that we go towards and the ones that are proven to be the most effective are what are called behavioral therapies. So CBT, because it has that B, cognitive behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy, even DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, those are all behavioral based treatments. And those are best when it comes to ADHD, like time and time again. And I think because a lot of it has to do with working with, not against our brains and understanding why when things have five steps, we get frozen and we can't get anything done, what kind of techniques or behaviors can we shift or do to improve that? Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, I'm struggling with constant suicidal ideation. And when I talk about it to my therapist or psychiatrist, I don't cry when I say the hard stuff. And I'm afraid it's painting the narrative that I'm lying about it. Hmm. But the truth is that in the past, whenever I would cry, I wouldn't get help. Also, with this being constant for over two years, my therapist is expressing that she's beginning to feel helpless, which makes me me feel so bad and like a burden. What are your thoughts? Thanks so much. Okay, a lot to say here. Now, the reason, my hypothesis, the reason that we don't cry when we talk about hard stuff or we're not able to cry when we're truly suicidal and having a really tough time is because we're disconnected. It's become too much. Our system is overwhelmed. And so the only way for us to keep pushing forward and going through life is to just check out. Could also be due to dissociate, like dissociation, any kind of dissociative disorder. If we aren't, we're kind of removed from self. If you don't know what dissociation is, it's essentially when our brain pulls the ripcord on reality a bit to allow us to keep going through it, to keep like living, but to protect us from the psychological damage that could occur staying present. Meaning that if a trauma is happening to me right now, my brain can make me feel like it's not happening to me. I'm like watching myself or I'm like really removed watching myself like a movie. So I don't feel so present in it. And that dissociation is protective, um, but it can get in the way and cause us to feel really disconnected from self a lot and be uncomfortable in that way too. So that's why you can't cry. I would let your therapist know. I mean, they already obviously know this, but you could even say like, oh, I asked this weird therapist on the internet (laughs) and she told me that she thought it was this. What do you think about that? And you can talk about it that way. But the fact that your therapist is feeling helpless, you're not a burden. That's not what's going on here. I've felt this way as a therapist many times. And it's essentially when we feel like everything we're trying to do isn't helping you and we feel ineffective at our jobs. Now, that's not on you. That's just an occurrence. Any therapist who's good at their job, just hear me out. Any therapist who's good at their job will recognize and acknowledge the fact that sometimes they feel like they aren't good at their jobs. And it's the ones who will say that they can fix anything, do anything. They're always killing it. They're good at their jobs. They really help their patients. The ones that are extremely confident, I know people might disagree with this, but I find those ones aren't good at their jobs because they can't admit when maybe there needs to be ancillary support. Like if I think I'm God's gift to people and I can heal everyone and I have all the answers, I mean, you can already see where this is going wrong, right? That's just not possible. I'm human, you're human, you're going to want somebody who you connect with, maybe you don't connect with me. 
that doesn't mean I'm not good at my job or, you know, I can admit also when I'm out of options. I've tried everything I know. That's why I, um, when I was in Santa Monica and seeing patients in my private practice, I would go to this meeting every month where I'd talk with other clinicians and I would ask them about cases that were tough for me and they would offer support and ideas and workbooks and uh, different assessments to offer and just things because, you know, I am not, I don't know it all. I can't do it all. And no therapist should I think that. And so your therapist just coming into that very natural and normal part of being a therapist where we realize that the things that we had tried aren't working and we maybe aren't sure what to do with it next. Now, if your therapist is wanting to figure this out, which that's the kind of therapist I am, you consult, you go to see somebody, you you maybe pay another clinician or you talk to a buddy, a colleague, and you ask them about this and you say, hey, I'm feeling really helpless. These are the things I've tried and it's not working. Um, don't worry, we protect your privacy and change names and things, but it's mainly just, you know, that experience. Now, I don't know, my gut says that the suicidal thoughts haven't relented haven't given us any space for a couple of reasons this is in my experience i'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments but number one i think that we can get caught in suicidal ideation and not get better because we don't know who we are without it number one number two it can be scary to feel like we're okay because then we feel like we don't have a right to to actually feel shitty or have this response or be having a tough time almost like our uh, mental illness isn't warranted so we can stay in it Number three, our depression can be so heavy that maybe we need medication. And so we're drowning in our symptoms. Nothing a therapist can do is going to pull you out if you're drowning. You need to get your head above water so you can participate because therapy is going to be like things that you have to do on your own, like a lot of it. So if you're not able to do that, then it's not going to work. And finally, my fourth and final thought about this is the fact that you're so disconnected I think we need to get some grounding in there because my guess is that there's a reason, maybe some trauma in our past or uh, maybe even just, you know, rumination that we can't get over, we can't move out of. And whenever your therapist probably tries to help you with that, you dissociate. And then we can't process it through. We can't focus on it. We can't do the work. And so we're kind of held in this like, I feel like shit. I want to get better. We try to talk about it. I dissociate. I feel like shit. I want to get better. And we just go round and round and round. So those are my thoughts. Maybe let your therapist listen to this or tell them about it. Take some notes because we can get out of this. We can move through it. It can become a thing of the past. But right now we're just, we're caught in an unhealthy cycle with it. And we have to figure out kind of where it's coming from. Maybe some of the things I mentioned, you know, really resonate and others don't, or maybe none of them do. But that's also important because then that means, well, okay, we can knock those ones out. That's not where this is coming from. That's not that piece, right? Keep me posted, Okay. Now, the comment on this, there's a couple of them. It says, yes, I fear, I fear this so much. Around the age of 16, when I struggled badly with this, I felt like a robot. I wasn't able to cry or really show any emotions. Now I found myself back in this place and I just can't cry in therapy or around others when talking about it, even though I literally feel pain where I'm holding it back. I feel like if I was only able to cry, people would see how much hurt and be able to help me better. That's not really true. I know it feels that way. Just like I said, we're numbed out, right? So we do have those feelings. We have that experience. And we have the desire to get the help that we need and feel like it's warranted help. And I'm here to tell you that cry or not cry, it's still warranted. 
I might even encourage you to to journal about where this belief comes from. Why do you think you have to cry and really show emotions to prove that you're doing poorly enough? Were you always told when you were growing up that, you know, uh, you were too much or, oh, you're fine, like walk it off. Like was it all shrugged off, acting like nothing was that big of a deal, nothing that you did ever warranted attention or care or support? I don't know. Let's think about that. But that robot piece, and the reason I concluded this, because I know there's not like a clear question here, but that robot piece is that dissociation. And it's incredibly common. And so if you find yourself kind of coming back to this place, I'm first of all, if we've ever gotten out of our suicidal ideation, feeling like a robot situation, I always want to know how, what worked. Let's think back. Let's take notes on that because chances are it will work again. Okay, so that's one piece. And then second, I think is that if we find ourselves sliding back, do we know what triggers it? Because that helps us prepare. That also helps us kind of figure out what kind of coping skills we might need or what kind of ancillary support could be beneficial. Like for instance, if what's causing us to slide back into this is the lack of friends. Let's say we move schools or we move jobs and we lost a lot of our friends. Let's say you're like me and you move states and you don't have any friends where you are now then that means that connection is key. And can we make a way, figure out a way, whether it's traveling back to see friends or connecting with someone that we've lost touch with, can we do some of that? That's just one random example. There could be a zillion reasons why this is happening. Um, Also, it might be medication-based. You might need to increase our dose or change something. Talk to your psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. But yeah, I do want to dig into that belief that if you were able to cry, then people would see how much hurt you have. That's very interesting how hurt you are. Hmm. Okay, moving on. The other add-on says, I'm starting to have more suicidal thoughts. It's passive, but starting to become ideations. I don't want it to. I think part of the problem is that I haven't had, I, I think part of the problem is that I haven't had consistent therapy and psychiatry. I have big plans coming up and I don't want to be hospitalized. What can I do? Also, I have a hard time being truly honest with my mental health team. I'm honest with them after the fact, but I'm scared of people's reactions. Mostly they are concerned and caring then we have to check our facts. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Now, first of all, if we don't want to be hospitalized, we have big plans coming up, what can we do? I have some videos about this I want you to look up. Look up safety plan Katie Morton, or maybe suicide safety plan Katie Morton. Either of those, it should come up. And I want you to create that plan as much as you can. I know that you're already kind of having a tough time, and ideally, we would have done this when we feel like we don't even need to create it. Create that plan, okay? Second is... I know you haven't had consistent therapy or psychiatry, but can we get in an appointment with them ASAP? Say it's an emergency, say we're struggling, say we need more support, because you do. You are valued, you deserve to get care, you deserve to take up space. Those are your time slots to give or to take if they'll give them, okay? So I wonder about medication and if maybe we need to get increased dose, change of medication, something like that, talk to your psychiatrist. And then if, if like I find the number one indicator of someone being able to pull themselves out of a situation like this is support. So if that means um, friendships we need to reconnect with, we need to text some people. If that means family members we need to call or text, we call or text. That means, you know, people online that we need to message, any of that. Let's reach out. When you have a little extra energy, use that to reach out because I find getting consistent support and care from someone can is really life-changing. So give that a go. Okay. And let your therapist, you let your team know that you're, you struggle to be honest in the moment. They already probably know this, but just speak it 
and tell them, like, speak your truth. Tell them this is what you're dealing with. I have trouble being honest. I'm honest after the fact because I'm always scared of your reactions and what you might say or do. Let's talk about that. If you don't want to talk about it with them right away, can you journal about that? Like, what are, what are you really concerned with? What do you think their reactions are going to be? Because we have to check our facts because they've never reacted poorly, it sounds like. But we have some kind of old narrative that's infecting today. And I'm curious about what that is. So let's be curious, not judgmental about it. Okay, and with that, let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie. I was wondering if you could explain why certain diagnoses can commonly coexist. Like why is having an eating disorder and OCD seen together often? I'm in the trenches right now with both, oh, with both and GAD or generalized anxiety disorder. And they feed into each other and are so tightly intertwined that even the idea of sorting them out is exhausting. At this point, it feels like the what came first, the chicken or the egg question. And I find myself just going through the cycle of trying to attach the behavior to the correct diagnosis, getting frustrated because there's so much overlap and then shutting down. And as much as I know life would be so much easier without either of them, these thought cycles are persuading me away from that and make me make life feel easier with them than to get rid of them. Of course, they do. So manipulative. We'll talk about that. How do you as a therapist pick what needs to be targeted first? Contamination OCD versus eating disorder. When it feels like the treatment for one will cause the other to get worse. Okay, um, there's a couple of add-ons to this. But overall, they coexist because they share a common thread. And immediately when I read this question, I was like, oh, your common thread is anxiety, control, or lack of, but the illusion of control. So people have said, and I don't, I don't want to say that this is like 100% true, but to me, it is very true. The belief that depression is concerned about the past and anxiety is concerned about the future. You've heard that before, right? You're always worried about the what ifs in life, I would assume. I think the, the feeling that like, oh, things are contaminated. What if I get sick? What if that's dirty? What if, what if, what if? That's anxiety-based. You have generalized anxiety disorder. You have uncontrollable worry about a lot of different things. And all of this, because it feels so overwhelming and uh, charging to our system, we feel very like dysregulated. We use our eating disorder to cope with it. And so we have to always remember that an eating disorder, self-injury, addiction, um, a lot of different mental illnesses are coping skills, meaning that they help us deal with something else going on. An eating disorder is never the primary. I have yet to meet someone, treat someone, hear from someone in our community who says that their eating disorder exists all on its own, that there's no anxiety, there's no depression, there's no suicidal thoughts, there's no trauma. I've never, I've never encountered that. And that's because it's a coping skill. Okay. And so when it comes to your treatment, to be truthful, I don't necessarily think we need to figure out which one it's coming from. We don't need to tease that out. We can, but if you find that not beneficial, let's stop doing it. Instead, let's try to treat the symptoms that we're experiencing today that are causing us the most pain. My good friend, Dr. Alexa Altman said this to me years ago, that when it comes to, and this is obviously trauma treatment specific, but I think it applies to all mental health stuff. She said, you know, in trauma specifically, we worry a lot about the memories and the memories, you know, being like a, a story to tell. They're very linear. We can follow them along. She's like, but unfortunately, we don't always have memories of the traumatic experiences. But 
what we do have is the symptoms that are bothering us today. And that's what we really need to focus on in our treatment. And I took that nugget of information was like, oh my God, yes, because a lot of times we don't know where things are coming from. Why am I feeling like this? Is this part of my anxiety? We frankly don't need to know. It doesn't matter if we have a full linear explanation. We have a story to tell ourselves. It would be nice, especially for those of us who like to like intellectualize and reason things out. It would be lovely. But if we don't know, let's forget about it. It doesn't matter. Let's focus on the symptoms. What's bothering you today? It sounds like I would assume that anxiety in, in and of itself is the most upsetting. And I think the contamination is probably distressing the most. And then the I'm assuming you probably don't sleep well and you have these like racing thoughts. Those would be probably two that I would just off the top of my head guesstimate are bothering you. Let's focus on that. And I believe if we can get you some treatment for your anxiety, we'll feel a little bit better and more able to make good decisions when it comes to our OCD symptoms and our eating disorder symptoms. Meaning, because OCD, the way to stop it or to heal from it or overcome it is to not engage in the compulsions. Well, that makes your anxiety go up. And if our anxiety is already already up, that's going to like, sorry, I really stuttered there. (laughs) But if our anxiety is already really up, it's going to max us out. We could dissociate, have a panic attack feel a lot of discomfort. And so we're not going to want to do that. But if we can take the edge off a little and we feel a little bit better through medication or other treatments, then we have the space to make a different decision. And maybe that means we put off doing the compulsion. Maybe that means we put off doing our eating disorder behavior. Maybe. But let's start there. Okay. There were comments on this. I said, as an add-on, I read that people with ADHD have, oh, sorry, I didn't answer this initial part. Like why do some of these diagnoses commonly coexist. And honestly, it's not that they, I mean, I guess eating disorders and OCD do commonly coexist, but again, eating disorders are just more of a coping skill. I, I think it's, it's more that we have underlying issues and then we have an eating disorder as a result. And I wouldn't say that it's, maybe the correlation is higher, but in my experience, the the most common correlation with any like mental illness is trauma. So like I have trauma, I also have BPD, I have an eating disorder, I have self-injury, I have uh, uh, addiction, substance abuse, things like that. That's really the most common occurring. But I think the reason that some of them tend to hang out together is because they share in symptomology. That's why. If we already have anxiety, so we have generalized anxiety disorder, then look under the umbrella of anxiety, you could find OCD in there, panic disorder, right? Those are things that would be easy to be like, oh yeah, yeah. And so because we already have that threat, if you have depression, on the other hand, you know, that could come along with with suicidal thoughts, come along with sometimes maybe like a BPD kind of symptoms. We can feel really down, have a lack of sense of self, like we were talking about earlier. You know, there can be different things that tend to run together, just depending on the symptoms that present themselves. But an eating disorder, self-injury, addiction, all of those things are coping skills for other things going on. Does that mean they're not mental illnesses on their own? No, they are. However, they exist because they're helping us kind of mask something else. Does that make sense? So they can always hang out along with any mental illness, essentially. Okay? Okay. Now moving on to the add-ons. I was like, where was I? It said, I read that people with ADHD have a higher chance of getting or having an eating disorder. Is that true? And what are your thoughts on it? Okay, now... I don't specialize in the treatment of ADHD, but I can tell you what I know about eating disorders. Again, they're coping skills. And the one thing that I will tell you about ADHD is that when we have ADHD, if it goes undiagnosed, 
in childhood, we often grow up being bullied, thinking that we're lazy and stupid. We have a really nasty way of talking to ourselves about our capabilities in life. And it really has detrimental effects. So what do we do to cope with it? Other things. I think ADHD also, if I remember correctly, has a higher correlation with uh, substance abuse as well. So there you have it. That would be why I think they happen together more often. Also, when we have ADHD, executive functioning, which I know we use that term a lot, and I'll do a video, I'll do a full video about that. But like executive functioning is really just our ability to take a task and, and work through it. To it, That's why they call it executive functioning. It's like our ability to function in our life. Because someone without ADHD, such as myself, can look at the fact that I'm recording this podcast and I can say, oh, I need to record that podcast today. Okay. And I put it in my calendar and I do it. And it seems, I mean, I guess it could be stressful or like our dog kept us up last night. So if I'm yawning and I'm like, oh, it's because she kept us up all night last night. She was sick. She's fine. But um, anyway, so I can still get this accomplished and I just do it and it's fine and it's over. Someone with ADHD will see all of the steps required. Like I had to gather your questions. I had to read them and research them. I did that yesterday, by the way. I have to get, uh, I have to have Sean set up this thing. I have to sit down. I have to record it, right? It, it sounds so simple to people without ADHD, but with someone with ADHD, it feels like 70,000 million steps to get the thing done. And we get frozen and we're like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. And so that lack of executive function, that difficulty with executive functioning can make our life feel harder, can make things more stressful. We can often feel like everything's just overwhelming, hence why we want to numb out addiction, eating disorder, self-injury, things like that. Yeah, those are really my thoughts on it. I think it's it, there's pieces of it, but a huge piece is executive functioning and the symptoms of ADHD that are upsetting to us. Another is the story we tell ourselves about who we are and our capabilities. I think all of that can make us more vulnerable to finding some way else to cope. And remember, if we were taught, which most of us were not, unfortunately, because our parents didn't know any better and weren't any more emotionally aware. But if we were taught growing up healthy ways to manage our upsets, let's say my mom used to sit me down and say, you know what, I'm upset. I color and I journal and I talk about it or whatever. And she would do those things with me and we would do them. Tell me about your day and da, da, da. And I had this like practice of doing it. Then as I get older, when I have a tough time, instead of turning it in on myself or becoming a perfectionist or a people pleaser, all the things that I used to do and do still kind of do, instead of doing those things, I'll utilize those tools that my mom showed me. This is how I process. I have community. I talk to somebody. I process it out personally. I journal. And I also color just as it's like repetitive and it's very soothing to my nervous system without realizing all of this. I have been set up for success in more ways than most people. And so when we don't have those coping skills that are healthy, we turn to others like eating disorders, self-injury, shopping, substance abuse, gambling, sex, all those things to try to essentially kind of numb out from the discomfort. Okay. Final add-on says, how do you feel about self-diagnosis of comorbidity? Now I have a full video. If you want to look up self-diagnosis, Katie Morton, you can check it out. Essentially my whole, as a whole, my thoughts on self-diagnosis are that if it helps us put a name to what's going on with us, I'm fine with it. I think it's very validating for a lot of people and it allows us to feel heard and understood or like we have a term to describe what we're going through versus trying to explain it in other ways. And we can feel like we're taken more seriously then. However, so keeping that all in mind, however, I do believe it is important for us to get that potential self-diagnosis 
evaluated and assessed by a true mental health professional. Because there are, I'm not saying we know better, but with your experience and my expertise, we can actually figure it out. Because you're going to know your symptoms and what you think it is, but I'm able to kind of put it into the computer of what we call differential diagnosis and say like, you know, you thought it was generalized anxiety disorder, but I actually think it's more panic disorder because you actually have panic attacks. That's what those are. You thought that was just like, can't catch your breath. You were having a panic attack, right? So there's things that that we might understand or know that you might not understand or know, and you're not supposed to, but I have, there's nothing wrong with self-diagnosis as long as we get it checked out and kind of affirmed by a mental health professional. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. And this question says, hi, Katie, I suffered a head injury about six months ago, and I've struggled with feeling depressed, adjusting to my new way of life, not quote unquote smart anymore, can't work full time, not able to participate in hobbies, etc." For context, I had anxiety before the injury and was apparently struggling a lot with this. I can't remember the last couple of years. I'm struggling to feel anxious about being stuck in this life forever. I'm UK-based and I'm receiving basic CBT and I'm on a long waiting list for high-intensity CBT. Could you explain a bit what this is, please? Can just CBT help process a trauma like this? Should I try and um, seek a more talk-based therapy to process some of the depression or trauma? Thanks for all that you do. Okay. Now, I do want to acknowledge the the correlation. I'll actually link to a study in the description. I'll make sure I put this um, in my notes here. There is a ton of research to prove that TBI or traumatic brain injuries can affect our mental health in extremely detrimental ways. And the most common is because if we get whiplash or have a concussion and our prefrontal cortex is whacked against our skull in the front of our head, which is very common in an accident, car accident. Um, someone hits us from behind. Um, even if someone punches us, right, our brain goes front to back, bah, 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 and it hits. And when our prefrontal cortex gets bruised or harmed, that can deeply affect our emotion regulation. Our prefrontal cortex is in a lot of ways, and I'm probably not going to explain it completely and fully, but it's responsible for a lot of adult-like behaviors or interactions, meaning that our prefrontal cortex allows us to organize, not only organize our behaviors, but organize our thoughts, put them into sentences, allow us to focus and to regulate our emotion. So it's a lot of our personality. And there are a lot of studies of people who've had tumors in their prefrontal cortex and it's completely changed who they are. They'll act in very violent ways um, after they were super calm and loving, or they'll, you know, be in, intensely agitated, irritable when before and then after they're super calm and easygoing. It, it can be these drastic, there was a, it can be these drastic shifts. There was this famous study I learned in uh, grad school and it was by this guy, it's the famous case of Phineas uh, Gage. If you want to look it up, Phineas Gage, G-A-G-E is his last name. He was a construction worker and it was like in the 1800s, he got hit with a an iron bar like a went through his his skull and it seriously damaged his frontal lobe and the photos are like really wild anyway his doctor uh dr harlow described these personality changes that he went through and they talked about the fact that he used to be like really responsible and, and very kind and calm and like what they call like i think they use the term like socially adapted like he interact in society good guy then after his accident, he became negligent 
completely like uh, irritable. He would lash out. He would he like cursed at everybody. He was like a drunk. He did also his like completely shifted who he was. And so what this really showed was the the effects of damage to the frontal lobe on our personality. And so there's been obviously more research. This was in the 1800s. It was like, uh, I made notes here, 1848. But it just shows you that when we have TBIs, when we have traumatic brain injuries, it can detrimentally affect our life if we don't understand it and we don't get treatment for it. Now, I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't know how much of it can be fixed or reversed, but I do know that there are exercises and people who specialize in it. And so back to the question this person originally asked, when it comes to CBT, I don't, I'm sure some of that is helpful for you, but the true, the true treatment is finding someone who does TBI specific stuff because it's not just therapy. I know your mental health has been affected because actually your brain has been affected, but we have to do brain exercises. Like there's a member of our community who unfortunately has had a lot of different TBIs and she has to do like these exercises or they're exhausting by the way. Don't plan anything after them, but you have to like recall certain um, words. You have to run calculations and it's essentially like a brain workout and they'll assess you to try to figure out how it's affecting you, where it's affecting you, what parts of your life or cognition are the most affected by this injury. And then there'll be exercises to better that. Like even one of my friends, uh, Mindy McKnight, she has a, a channel on YouTube called Cute Girls Hairstyle. She's been around forever. I love Mindy and her husband, Sean. She had intense brain fog after getting COVID. This was way back in like, I want to say like early 2021. She went to this uh I forget what it was called, you guys, but it was essentially like a cognitive research center. And she, for a week, did their treatments to reduce that brain fog. And it got way better. She said it was so exhausting though. Like it was like six hour days and she said she'd just go home and sleep. Like there was nothing else she could do for a full like five days. Anyway, all that to say that I don't think based on what I know and what I've read that CBT is going to be the godsend for you. And when it comes to trauma, especially you had a trauma that caused this, there is trauma-based CBT. So I believe it's called T-CBT, like trauma CBT, or no, TF, that's what it's trauma-focused, TF-CBT. Sorry, I just had to let that percolate in my brain. That is supposed to be the best for trauma. So CBT can be effective. And that might be what they mean by high intensity CBT. I'm not familiar with that term. That's not something that I learned about. That's not something that I've utilized in my practice, but I do know trauma focused. And so I would just ask them and I'd stay on that waiting list, especially in the UK. Waiting list can be forever. Let's not remove ourselves from that line. But I would look into getting more treatment for your TBI specifically. Okay. Okay. Another person said, I feel this too. I hope Katie answers. I did. Yay. I had repeat non-fatal strangulation and concussions from the age of five and up causing a lot of problems. Three years ago, I had another DA and I don't know DA what that stands for. In my brain, it's dissociative amnesia, but I might be incorrect. But I had another DA episode giving me bad enough TBI. So maybe, maybe it was another accident to get epilepsy. Since then, my mood is a switch. I call it the death switch. I wonder if it'll just if it'll get just worse. I don't feel like me at all anymore. I get confused a lot or lost, and my mind reboots with every PTSD memory. I feel like antidepressants aren't going to cut through the issue. No, in research, we don't find those to be that 
to improve that that much. I've been using talk therapy, um, anti-epileptics, good. Those that actually is, that does track, but not antidepressants. They make me feel worse with my suicidal ideation. What do you do when you're losing yourself? I'm so sorry you're going through this. Um, again, my best advice is to find someone who works with TBI. Luckily in the States, at least because of sports, especially like hockey and football, there's more and more research going into TBI, especially with concussions, because those people sustain them all the time. And we find that they have a really tough time later in life and, you know, regulating emotions and managing. It's like, it's really, really tough. And so find someone who specializes in that so we can get you back. Now, again, I'm not a neurologist or a neuroscientist. I don't know 100% how much can be reversed, but I do know that there are exercises and actual like clinics that specialize specifically in stuff like this to help improve our brain function. So ask about it, ask for referrals, you know, make sure it's covered by your insurance. Let's, let's do the legwork. I know it's exhausting. Have someone maybe help you with this, but let's get you in to see a specialist because I don't believe antidepressants are going to touch this. It's, that's not really how they work. Anti-epileptics actually do help a lot of people, but we need to get you in to see, and I'm sure you already see a neurologist, but we need to make sure that we're getting full and proper treatment for our TBIs. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, Katie, right now I am in my internship of counseling. Congratulations. I feel like I'm a fake and a failure. I personally struggle with anxiety and what I believe is PTSD, but my therapist recently changed it so that it's not PTSD. Hmm. That's interesting. I struggle with my parents. Oh, with my parents' divorce and dealing with a lot of emotions and anger towards my dad. Currently, all of my clients that I'm getting are all struggling with similar similar issues with their fathers, and it's just getting to be so much. I struggle to be able to talk about it during sessions with my personal counselor, and I don't want to turn away all of these clients. What suggestions do you have to help? Okay, this is tough love. You're going to be a great counselor. Don't worry. But when we're dealing with our own shit, that's going to limit what we can work on, what we can treat. That doesn't mean that you're not effective. That's not a bad thing. Turning away patients that we can't help isn't turning them away to nothing. It's saying, I personally can't help you. As a therapist, we have to learn that we cannot save everyone. And essentially, this is this pivotal moment in your internship, in your process to becoming an amazing counselor, where you realize you cannot set yourself on fire to keep others warm. I know I'm a caretaker too. I want to help everybody. I want to fix everybody. I want to make everything better. I want to be Wonder Woman. We're human. And this is your issue thing with fathers. Doesn't mean we can't get through it and we can't treat people later. But when you're in it, you're not you're not capable. You don't have the distance that you healthily need to do it with a patient. You can't talk through tough times with them and hold the space when we're full. It's like when my dad died. Um, if I'd had a patient come in who just lost their dad, it would have been horrible. I would have cried. I was already having a tough time. I took two weeks off and didn't see a patient personally. I did groups only. Luckily, I worked at the Eating Disorder Treatment Center, but I didn't have any of my one-on-one patients for a month. And even then, when I got back into it, you guys, it was still really hard. We're humans too. You're not a failure. You're not a fraud. You're human. That's what makes us good at our jobs. But just know that we can't treat everybody. And if we're in it and we're dealing with this ourselves, that happens to be a spot where we just, we have to refer out. We have to give them to someone else. It doesn't mean they won't get help. We just can't be the one to offer it because we can't give it. 
Okay? So keep that in mind. It's okay to turn people away. I know it goes against the reason that you got into this. You want to help everybody. We all have our limitations. And right now in this current moment, this happens to be yours. We have to change the way we talk to ourselves about this. Every therapist goes through this. If I was having a really, really tough financial time and it was stressing me out to the point where I was crying all the time, and if I had a patient going through the same thing, it it sounds silly, but I'm just not able to do it. I don't have the personal space. I can't hold that for my patient. I can't offer solutions when I'm in it. And that's okay. Okay? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Work on yourself first. And then those things will open up. And trust me, it gets better. And we get better at recognizing it. But that's why it's so important for us to be in our own therapy. And let your therapist know that you are having a tough time talking about it. You don't have to say what it is. You can just say, there's things that I I have a tough time opening up about, and I don't really know why. Sometimes just talking about the kind of the why of like what shuts us down or what makes it so we can't open up, like that can sometimes allow, it's almost like we're sneaking in the side window or something. It allows us in without having to directly call it out and say like, my parents are getting divorced and I'm really angry with my dad. You know, that might be too much to say. The truth might be too heavy and like also feel really overwhelming. And I will also tell you this, that if you stop seeing patients who are going through this, it will leave space for them to get healing from someone else and also for you to heal on your own. Sometimes having patients who are dealing with it too can feel like it's own burden and it can kind of shut us down. Like we don't, we shouldn't be taking up the space. We shouldn't be talking about this. We should be fine. We can have that kind of judgment. So I encourage you, don't see those types of patients for right now and tell your therapist you're struggling to open up, okay? Final question, question number six says, hey, Katie, I have a new therapist. I've been seeing her for almost two months. Wonderful. During our sessions, I talk about something and when I'm done, she just sits there in silence looking at me. It drives me crazy. I told her this and she didn't give me an explanation as to why she does this. Is this a therapeutic tactic? Is she looking for me to do something? Your help on this would be greatly appreciated. It is kind of a therapeutic tactic, but I almost wouldn't even call it that. It's in therapy, leaving space where we just sit sometimes allows not only for me as the therapist to not jump in to try to fix something or to give an analogy or to assist, but it also allows you as the patient to think if there's anything else you want to say or if something comes up for you. My therapist does this too, and it usually doesn't bother me, but I find it bothers me when I'm feeling more anxious. So just putting that out there. Maybe that's why. But you let her know that that bugs you. But I might encourage you to consider what about the silence makes you uneasy? For example, sometimes the the silence and therapy can make us uneasy because we feel like we have to fill it. Like we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Can you see where I'm going with this? Like we should be talking more. We should have more answers. Maybe we should have said something different. We might have a lot of personal judgment or anxiety thinking that we worry we're not doing therapy right. And we can spin ourselves out. And that in and of itself is actually really helpful information. And if that is true, that's just an example, could be something else. 
we can take that to our therapist and say, you know, when you're when you're silent after I've finished talking, I find myself feeling like maybe I'm doing therapy wrong and it makes my anxiety go wild. Can we work on some tools or techniques to better help me with that? Maybe it's checking my facts. Maybe it's just like, maybe we just make eye contact and we think, you know what? This is healthy for me. It's okay. I'm doing everything right. Maybe we talk ourselves down. We have a mantra. It's okay to have silence and conversations. Sean and I do it all the time. We'll be talking and then we'll pause for a second. Maybe we'll start watching TV for a bit and we'll come back. Oh, I was thinking sometimes we need that space to process. And that's really because it's just you and your therapist and there's no other distractions. We notice it way, 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 way more and it's super uncomfortable, but that's kind of why we do it. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Have a happy, happy holidays. I love you all. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.